0: Chapter Seventy Six of White Jacket or The World in a Man of War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White White Jacket or The World in a Man of War by Herman Melville. Chapter Seventy Six THE CHAINS When wearied with the tumult and occasional contention of the gun-deck of our frigate, I have often retreated to a porthole, and calmed myself down by gazing broad off upon a placid sea. After the battle-din of the last two chapters, let us now do the like, and, in the sequestered four chains of the Neversink, tranquilize ourselves, if we may. Notwithstanding the domestic communism to which the seamen in a man-of-war are condemned, and the publicity in which actions, the most diffident and retiring in their nature, must be performed, there is yet an odd corner or two where you may sometimes steal away, and, for a few moments, almost be private. Chief among these places is the chains, to which I would sometimes hie during our pleasant homeward-bound glide, over those pensive tropical latitudes after hearing my fill of the wild yarns of our top here would i recline if not disturbed serenely concocting information into wisdom the chains designates the small platform outside of the hull at the base of the large shrouds leading down from the three mastheads to the bulwarks at present they seemed to be getting out of vogue among merchant vessels, along with the fine, old-fashioned quarter-galleries, little turret-like appurtenances which, in the days of the old admirals, set off the angles of an armed ship's stern. Here a naval officer might lounge away an hour after action, smoking a cigar, to drive out of his whiskers the villainous smoke of the gunpowder. The picturesque, delightful stern-gallery, also a broad balcony overhanging the sea, and entered from the captain's cabin much as you might enter a bower from a lady's chamber. This charming balcony, where, sailing over summer seas in the days of the old Peruvian viceroys, the Spanish cavalier Mendana of Lima made love to the Lady Isabella as they voyaged in quest of the Solomon Islands, the fabulous Ophir, the Grand Cyclades, And the Lady Isabella at sunset blushed like the Orient And gazed down to the goldfish and silver-hued flying fish That wove the woof and warp of their wakes In bright scaly tartans and plaids Underneath where the Lady reclined. This charming balcony, exquisite retreat, Has been cut away by vandalic innovations. Ay, that claw-footed old gallery is no longer in fashion, in Commodore's eyes is no longer genteel. Out on all furniture fashions, but those that are past. Give me my grandfather's old armchair, planted upon four carved frogs, as the Hindus fabled the world to be supported upon four tortoises. Give me his cane with the gold-loaded top, a cane that, like the musket of General Washington's father and the broadsword of William Wallace would break down the back of the switch-carrying dandies of these spindle-shank days. Give me his broad-breasted vest, coming bravely down over the hips and furnished with two strong boxes of pockets to keep guineas in. Toss this toppling cylinder of a beaver overboard and give me my grandfather's gallant gable-ended cocked hat, But though the quarter-galleries and the stern gallery of a man-of-war are departed, yet the chains still linger, nor can there be imagined a more agreeable retreat. The huge blocks and lanyards forming the pedestals of the shrouds divide the chains into numerous little chapels, alcoves, niches, and altars, where you lazily lounge outside of the ship, though on board but there are plenty to divide a good thing with you in this man-of-war world. Often, when snugly seated in one of these little alcoves, gazing off to the horizon and thinking of Cathay, I have been startled from my repose by some old quarter-gunner, who, having newly painted a parcel of match-tubs, wanted to set them to dry. At other times, one of the tattooing artists would crawl over the bulwarks, followed by his sitter, and then a bare arm or leg would be extended, and the disagreeable business of pricking commence right under my eyes. Or an eruption of tars with ditty-bags or sea-reticles and piles of old trousers to mend would break in upon my seclusion and, forming a sewing-circle, drive me off with their chatter. But once—it was a Sunday afternoon— I was pleasantly reclining in a particularly shady and secluded little niche between two lanyards when I heard a low, supplicating voice. Peeping through the narrow space between the ropes, I perceived an aged seaman on his knees, his face turned seaward, with closed eyes buried in prayer. Softly rising, I stole through a porthole and left the venerable worshipper alone. He was a sheet anchorman. An earnest baptist and was well known in his own part of the ship to be constant in his solitary devotions in the chains he reminded me of saint anthony going out into the wilderness to pray this man was captain of the starboard bow chaser one of the two long twenty four pounders on the forecastle in time of action the command of that iron thalaba the destroyer would devolve upon him It would be his business to train it properly, to see it well loaded, the grape and canister rammed home, also to prick the cartridge, take the sight, and give the word for the matchman to apply his wand, bidding a sudden hell to flash forth from the muzzle in wide combustion and death. Now, this captain of the bow-chaser was an upright old man, a sincere, humble believer, and he but earned his bread in being captain of that gun. But how, with those hands of his begrimed with powder, could he break that other and most peaceful and penitent bread of the supper? Though in that hallowed sacrament, it seemed, he had often partaken ashore. The omission of this rite in a man-of-war though there is a chaplain to preside over it and at least a few communicants to partake must be ascribed to a sense of religious propriety in the last degree to be commended ah the best righteousness of our man-of-war world seems but an unrealized ideal after all and those maxims which in the hope of bringing about a millennium we busily teach TO THE HEATHEN WE CHRISTIANS OURSELVES DISREGARD IN VIEW OF THE WHOLE PRESENT SOCIAL FRAMEWORK OF OUR WORLD SO ILL ADAPTED TO THE PRACTICAL ADOPTION OF THE MEEKNESS OF CHRISTIANITY THERE SEEMS ALMOST SOME GROUND FOR THE THOUGHT THAT ALTHOUGH OUR BLESSED SAVIOR WAS FULL OF THE WISDOM OF HEAVEN YET HIS GOSPEL SEEMS LACKING IN THE PRACTICAL WISDOM OF EARTH in a due appreciation of the necessities of nations, at times demanding bloody massacres and wars, in a proper estimation of the value of rank, title, and money. But all this only the more crowns the divine consistency of Jesus, since Burnett and the best theologians demonstrate that his nature was not merely human, was not that of a mere man of the world. End of chapter 76 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista